It's Friday, March 9th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection keeps track of methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. But the data are not comprehensive, and a new study says DEP's official estimate of how much methane's being emitted in the state is too low. We estimate that it's it's more almost five times that number, so a little over 500,000 tons. The research paints a striking picture, but at the same time, it suggests Pennsylvania could in fact put a major dent in its greenhouse gas emissions by taking some relatively simple steps. If uh, companies implemented best practices that we could reduce methane emissions by 60 percent. So there's a really a large opportunity to to avoid that these high methane emissions by, by using some, some cost-effective available practices. We'll talk with researcher David Lyon of the Environmental Defense Fund on today's show. But first, I want to tell you about some upcoming events on the PEC events calendar. We are approaching a time of year when the Pennsylvania Environmental Council and many other groups are actively preparing for a number of springtime cleanup activities, as well as tree plantings and other events that rely on volunteers. We're putting out the word for uh, several events that we're planning to host in the month of April. A number of our partners and groups that we communicate with are doing likewise. And in order to make it easy to find one near you, we've put together a list of some of the opportunities that we're tracking. Here are some of the dates that are currently featured. April 7th, Riverside Cleanup in Pulaski Park and the Port Richmond Trail. This is hosted by Delaware River City Corporation in Philadelphia, April 7th. And on the same day, April 7th, 2018, the Pennsylvania Environmental Council's Community Illegal Dump Site Cleanup Program has an event planned in Manchester Township, Wayne County. That's hosted by PEC. The following weekend, you can get your hands dirty at Dimmick Township in Susquehanna County, a community illegal dump site cleanup event, again hosted by the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. And then the big marquee event for this Earth Day, as we have the last couple of years, PEC is looking for volunteers to help us plant trees on reclaimed mine lands in a couple of sites in northeastern and north-central Pennsylvania. Pinchot State Forest on April 20th, also April 20th. This is Earth Day. Wiser State Forest. You can see videos and photos from last year's events at those sites. And this year we're adding a new one. This is the Moshannon State Forest, an Earth Day tree planting event. That will span two days, April 20th and 21st. And then on April 27th and 28th, closing out the month at the Flight 93 National Memorial near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, on the southwestern corner of the state, an opportunity to plant a tree at Flight 93. It's hosted by the National Park Service, Friends of Flight 93, and the National Park Foundation. Plant a tree at Flight 93 on April 27th and 28th. Just a few of the opportunities we're tracking for volunteers to either clean up or green up their corner of the state. We've created a handy master list of volunteer cleanup and tree planting activities planned for the month of April. You can find it at our website, pecpa.org. On the homepage, you'll see a blog post near the top titled, Let's Pick It Up. And if you click through that, you'll see details and links for all of these dates and more. Again, it's pecpa.org. In 2015, oil and gas operations in Pennsylvania emitted more than 112,000 tons of methane, the primary component of natural gas, into the atmosphere. That's according to the official methane inventory used by the Department of Environmental Protection. 
Now, for a variety of reasons, the DEP estimates are widely viewed as conservative, and many experts have speculated the real number could be much higher. Until recently, though, such claims have mostly been limited to the realm of speculation. A new report, though, from the nonprofit Environmental Defense Fund tries to scientifically answer the question of exactly how much higher emissions may in fact be. David Lyon is a scientist at EDF, and he joins us now to lay out some of the findings. Hi, David. Hey, Josh. Let's start with the very basic background questions on this issue. You know, there are many reasons, and we've explored them on this show and, and elsewhere on our PEC website, uh, as has EDF, reasons why methane emissions are important, and they range from economic and public health and safety to worker safety and many others. But really, in, in many ways, the big concern is the climate. I want to start with climate change and ask you to explain kind of why methane is such an important consideration from a climate standpoint. Yeah, so methane is what we call a short-term climate forcer. So it has a relatively short lifespan in, in the atmosphere. About 12 years is, is the half-life. But it's a much more powerful at, at capturing heat in the atmosphere compared to, to CO2. So on a per-mass basis, um, methane compared to carbon dioxide has about 86 times the warming potential over 20 years. And some recent research has found that it may be even higher than that, maybe about 14% higher relative to CO2. So um, reducing met, uh, the emissions of methane is really important to reduce short-term climate impacts. So uh, potentially that could help reduce any kind of, of uh, near-term impacts, so things like uh, methane being released from the Arctic or sea ice melting. So uh, near-term climate impacts that could really have you know, great impacts on society and the environment could, could help potentially stop those or, or you know, minimize the, the occurrence by reducing the emissions of methane. So let's zoom in on Pennsylvania then, uh, one of several major oil and gas producing states in, in North America. Why is EDF interested specifically in emissions in Pennsylvania? Uh, so several reasons. For, so first, Pennsylvania is one of the, the biggest producing states. So number two after Texas and, and one of the fastest growing in, protect, in production. So the Marcellus shell is, you know, one of the, the, the biggest uh, shell plays in, in the world, um, you know, has a lot of potential for, for growth. So, uh, so, so a lot of potential to, to control uh, emissions at these, these new unconventional sites. Uh, but also it's, it's the, uh, it's, you know, the first area of, of production in the United States. So there's a lot of these old legacy wells, uh, including a bunch of abandoned wells, and then these these conventional wells that are still producing um, small amounts of, of gas and oil, uh, but are also contributing methane emissions. Uh, and also, you know, now there are a lot of opportunities to to use uh, you know regulations and, and good voluntary practices together to to reduce emissions. So, looking at the regulations, then Pennsylvania, you know, as in other states, we make decisions about how to regulate the oil and gas industry on the basis of data, emissions data, among others. Which data does the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania rely on to make these determinations? Um, what kind of body of evidence are they working with, and how are they getting it? Yeah, so mostly they're relying on emission inventories. So uh, these traditional inventories are relying on a lot of self-reported data from companies that uses typically um, things like engineering equations and then things called emission factors and activity data. So uh, how this works a lot of times is you'll, you'll do things like count the number of equipment. So, for example, how many pneumatic controllers do you have? And then you'll multiply that by an emission factor that's supposed to represent the, the average emissions from that piece of equipment. 
Uh, or another example is you may use some, some equations. So, for example, trying to estimate emissions coming out of a tank, you'll look at things like uh, the pressure of gas in the separator and, and the temperature, and then you can you use a physics equation to, to estimate the emissions. So there's, there's some issues with those. So, uh, so particularly um, these, these emission factors that people are used to, to estimate emissions can be uh, inaccurate. Um, and a lot of times um, they're too low because they were based on a, a limited number of measurements. Um, and these measurements that were made may have omitted a lot of these big emitters, these kind of super emitters and, and uh, malfunctions that cause very high emission rates may not have been accounted for in these emission factors. And there's also the matter of which facilities are subject to these kinds of reporting requirements. First of all, I mean, it's self-reported, so that in itself is, you know, maybe a point against the reliability or at least the completeness of the of the data set we're working with, but the fact that whole categories of the industry are exempt from the requirement is, is an issue as well, is it not? Correct. So only the unconventional wells are reporting their emissions. And what we found in our analysis as, is that the, the older conventional wells are actually responsible for the majority of emissions. And we can get into some more detail in a minute about reasons reasons a reasonable person might think that these inventory numbers from DEP would lowball the actual number. But first, like, what are those data telling us? What is the official inventory for Pennsylvania as of 2015, which is the base year that, that you looked at? So their official inventory estimates 112,000 tons of methane emissions from unconventional wells. And that sounds like a lot, but you've concluded that in all likelihood it's, it's quite a bit higher. How much higher are we talking about? What is the real number that EDF's report estimates? We estimate that it's, it's more almost five times that number, so a little over 500,000 tons. So for the unconventional wells, we estimate that it's about 254,000 tons, so a little more than twice as high as estimated by the state. But we also estimate about another 269,000 tons from these conventional wells. So overall, you know, our estimate's about five times higher than, than the state's estimate. So broadly speaking, why is that? How do you account for that big of a discrepancy? So two reasons. So first is the emission of the conventional wells is, you know, you know that's, that's emitting at least half the emissions. Um, and the other thing is just that the unconventional wells are using these traditional inventory approaches so they are underestimating emissions. And we, we find that this is true by you know, relying on some empirical data. So by using measurement data that looked at site-level emissions, we found that emissions are actually higher than you estimate by these, these inventory approaches. And this could be because a lot of, of high emission rate malfunctions that are, are really not being accounted for in these traditional inventories. Can we get a little more granular in talking about the, the methodology and specifically those empirical methods? Like, how do you actually, what do you, what do, you do physically to gather the information? Right. So for this analysis, we relied on a previously published study by Marco Mara, and it was published in 2016 in Environmental Science and Technology. This was the Carnegie Mellon study, I believe? Yes. Yes. This is the Carnegie Mellon study, and Marco Mara, um, he's currently a senior research analyst at Environmental Defense Fund, but while he performed this work, he was a postdoctoral researcher at Carnegie Mellon. And in this study, they measured 35 oil and gas well pads in southwest Pennsylvania and nearby West Virginia using the, the dual tracer approach. And this is a, a downwind mobile approach where you can measure total emissions from a site. 
so how it works is you you release a tracer gas at a known emission rate from the site, and then you drive downwind of the site in a research vehicle that measures the concentration of the tracer gas and methane. And you can then calculate the emissions of the methane since you know the emissions of the tracer gas. So it's a highly accurate method of estimating total emissions. So Mark performed this research at 35 sites to estimate the, the methane emission rates at about, about half conventional and half unconventional sites. And then um, compared the emission rate to the, the gas production of the sites to also c- calculate a loss rate, so what percentage of the, the gas is being emitted. So what we did for this analysis is we used the emission rates and loss rates from his study and applied it to recent gas production and site count data and estimated uh, county-level emissions. And in comparison, uh, I created uh, my version of a a best traditional inventory. So um, using lots of different data sources, including the EPA Greenhouse Gas Reporting Program and some some recent studies, uh, I estimated what do I think the emissions are from individual pieces of equipment at well pads in the state. And what I found was that the the emissions were, were substantially lower when you estimate with this equipment-level approach than the site-level approach. And this is consistent with other studies, like a study we did in the Barnett Shell that found that these, these site-level emission rates are, are finding emissions that are, that are being missed by these, these more traditional approaches. So in, in this study, what we did is, is we assumed that these site-level approaches are the correct estimate of total emissions, and then we assign the some of those emissions to these known sources, and the, the remaining this emissions gap we call um, abnormal conditions or, or super emitters. So these are what we, we think are, are malfunctions and, and other kind of abnormal, avoidable conditions that, that things like frequent leak detection or, or better site design can, can really help um, minimize the emissions from. So using all these methods and this richer data set that we now have available, you're able to arrive at what you know presumably is a lot more precise uh, snapshot kind of of where we're at now. But then you you take it a step further and extrapolate those data forward to present some projections for what what it might look like around, I think, the year 2025 if no steps are taken or if uh, certain other steps might be taken. Can you talk about how you translate the present day information to, to make that projection for the future and, and what it says we might be headed toward? Yeah, so our projection is a relatively straightforward analysis, just looking at, I believe it was um, the Energy Information Administration, so some some projections of, of uh, growth in, in drilling, um, and drilling, and it was just nationwide projections. So we, we use that to come up with a rough estimate of, of how many wells would be drilled in the state. Um, so if, if that growth rate uh, is true, then uh, by 2025, um, in the absence of state action, we found that there'd be an additional 5 million tons of methane emitted by 2025. Um, so, um, but if, if uh, companies implemented best practices, that we could reduce methane emissions by 60%. So there's a really a large opportunity to to avoid that, these high methane emissions by, by using some, some cost-effective available practices. What are you finding about the, what seem to be the causes and the sources of emissions? Is, is it mainly leaks and sort of faulty equipment, as you mentioned? Is it venting and flaring practices? And are there 
particular trouble spots within the supply chain where, where you seem to have more emissions than in other places? Yeah, so there are some known equipment sources with, with high emissions. So examples include pneumatic controllers. Um, pneumatic controllers intentionally vent emissions as part of their operation to control processes on, on oil and gas equipment. Um, but they can also malfunction and have substantially higher emissions than designed. Uh, and then there's the you know, traditional leak emissions. So you could have components that have maybe a loose fit that, that cause uh, you know, a, a poor seal calling the emissions to come out. Uh, and then you know, other things like, like storage tanks and dehydrators. So these are all kind of known, known sources of, em- of emissions. Uh, but what we find, one of, the, one of the biggest categories is this kind of unknown abnormal conditions category. So we don't know exactly what's causing it, but we do have some some evidence that suggests that a lot of it is coming out of storage tanks. So these oil and condensate and produced water tanks. And some of this we know from a, a study I did a couple years ago um, using helicopter-based infrared camera surveys of over 8,000 oil and gas well pads in the U.S. in seven different basins, including in, in Pennsylvania. So um, what, what we did is we surveyed all these sites to look for high emission rates, and then I used some statistical methods to try to predict where high emissions were coming from. Um, and what we found was that about 90% of these high emissions were coming out of tanks, but it was very difficult to predict where where they were coming, you know, what, what was causing these high emissions or what kind of sites they were associated with. So what we think that means is this is really due to, to malfunctions. So this could be like a, a controlled tank that has a flare or a vapor recovery unit that has some problem like the flare is unlit or the, the vapor recovery unit is clogged and, and it's no longer controlling emissions very well. Or it could be something upstream like the, the separator that separates the oil and gas uh, it could have a valve that gets stuck, and the gas, instead of going to the sales line and to the customer, is now going out the tank, so causing much higher emissions uh, than normal. So, and I take it this is why you think that some pretty substantial difference could be made simply by having better monitoring and keeping a better track of, of the equipment and making sure everything is in good repair and functioning as it's supposed to. Yes, I think really a lot of it's kind of adaptive management and better collection of data. So um, so both monitoring emissions, but also processes. So um, the more you, you know about a site and the, the quicker you can get information about it, um, the faster you'll be able to identify problems and address them. And, and not only can you, can you, you know, immediately mitigate the emissions, but you can try to do some root cause analysis and figure out what, really what went wrong at that site. Why do we have high emissions? And then see if there's any, any kind of redesign or equipment that needs replaced or is it just a, some kind of operational practice that needs to be changed. But you can come up with, with very cost-effective ways of trying to minimize the emissions and, and particularly kind of minimizing the recurrence of these really high emission events. You mentioned earlier that Pennsylvania is kind of a special case due to you know just the longevity of our fossil fuel industry here, and, and therefore we have a lot of old, including a lot of, I think nobody really knows very clearly how many uh, old abandoned oil and gas wells may be out there. But uh, there's this important distinction, both in, in the state law and regulations, and also in your research between conventional and unconventional operations. Can you explain a little bit more about why that distinction matters? 
between conventional and unconventional wells. I actually think the distinction does not matter as much as a lot of people say. So, so the the main difference in in conventional and, and unconventional wells is uh, that the the unconventional wells tend to use horizontal and or directional drilling and hydraulic fracturing to access type formations. So there are some differences uh, in the the drilling and, and fracturing process. But after that, uh, there's not a lot of differences inherent really between an unconventional and conventional well. So so I think where there are differences, it's it's really it's an artifact of age and that these these unconventional wells are just newer, so have some of the the newer technologies, just newer equipment. Um, so, so it, it, it's really more just the, these conventional wells. It's not that they're they're fundamentally different. It's just that they're they're older. Um, you know, that some of the the equipment may be be worn down. Um, and also, I guess the the one there is one one fundamental difference, and that's that the the unconventional wells is is since they are doing the horizontal drilling, they can put more wells on a pad. So I think because of that, it's it's easier to to have a more efficient pad in these newer unconventional sites. So so they can have more well pads, but you know more more centralized equipment. So it could be easier to control compared to these these older, smaller, more distributed conventional sites. One of the the facts I picked up on in the release you guys put out was that the rate of emissions for conventional operations seems to be quite a bit higher than you see with the unconventional. However, uh, for reasons that you just explained, but that because of the volume of unconventional gas production is so much higher that in absolute terms, you have more emissions uh, coming out in that sector. Correct. So these, these unconventional wells have, have lower relative loss rates uh, substantially lower loss rates um, than these these conventional wells because um, their their newer newer equipment intended to have you know more more wells per pad so potentially less less potential for for things to go wrong but they are at much higher production several orders of magnitude higher production than the conventional wells so even with these low loss rates of less than half a percent it adds up to very large amounts of methane emissions so. So one thing that I think has been been misunderstood by by some of our work is is people in industry are saying, well, you're saying emissions are, are already very low in these unconventional sites. So you know we've done everything needs to be done. We're saying no, that's not the case. Actually, um, we predict that emissions could be a lot lower in these unconventional sites. That this you know a loss rate of zero point three or zero point four percent is actually quite a bit higher than you'd expect. So, so there's still plenty of opportunity to get emissions even lower from both these, these unconventional sites with relatively low loss rates and these, these conventional sites with already high loss rates. Well, a related thing, maybe in some ways a different way of asking the same question, the regulations distinguish between new and existing facilities or new and modified, I guess, insofar as the the policy question hinges largely on that distinction. Have you found anything anything that might shape that discussion? Yeah, I think our work shows the importance of the existing sites. So, um, just addressing the the new sites or modified sites is 
is only going to get a, a small chunk of the, the potential reductions. So it, it's really critical that, that regulations also address these existing sites. So what are the big unknowns that haven't been resolved yet? What areas would you say need further study? Oh, I, I think one of the biggest unknowns are these, these super emitters, these abnormal process conditions. So we know the emissions are there. These, these site-level methods are accurate. So we, we know the emissions are coming from the site, but don't know exactly where they're coming from. So that's not as useful for companies and things that want to reduce emissions. They want to know, you know exactly what's, what's going wrong. So I think we need to collect more data and, uh, on, on what's really the cause of these, these emissions and um, what can we do to really to reduce their occurrence. Going back to the question of, of impacts, and we talked a bit about the climate, but of course it's not just a climate issue. We often talk about methane in terms of waste and inefficiency. It's probably not controversial to say that the climate impacts, however you care to measure them, are bigger than direct economic impacts. But at the same time, you know, if we're looking at five times higher actual emissions than, than maybe previously was believed, I wonder if we're also underestimating the economic costs as well. Does this actually lend, you know, force to that argument for having stricter controls on emissions? Oh, yeah, it does. So, I mean, the higher the emissions are, then the more products being lost. So, I um, mean, this is a valuable product that is not getting to, not all of us getting to the, the customers. So, um, so, so even if if you someone doesn't believe in you know climate impacts, there's there's all sorts of, of economic uh, reasons to reduce emissions. So a lot of it's just you know the efficiency of of the energy delivery. So you know, as a, a resource extraction company, we we want to you know, make sure that the these companies are, are good stewards and are are doing their best job to to get the the product you know, to to the market and to the customer responsibly. And it's not just about uh, methane either. You mentioned volatile organic compounds. What about VOCs and other harmful emissions that may be coming from oil and gas production? Are you able to say any more about what kind of health impacts these might be having, or is that a whole other question? Yeah, we don't address that directly, but we we do estimate that VOC emissions are about 54,000 tons, so nine times higher than reported to the state. And there could be all sorts of health impacts. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to directly you know, get into that, but there's, you know, some, some, there's some cancer-causing compounds. Um, there's some compounds that cause respiratory issues. So, uh, you know, potentially there could be some, uh, some areas where the, these areas you know, where oil and gas emissions are causing local health effects. So the more we know about this information, the, the better job we can do to, to make sure that people are not being impacted, and if they are trying to reduce emissions to mitigate those impacts. If we can kind of reframe this for a national context, and EDF is a nationwide organization, you've done similar research, I believe, in other states. What can you tell me about the findings in Pennsylvania and how they compare with what's known about emissions in other uh, oil and gas producing states? And also, how are other states addressing emissions in those places? And, you know, what have the results been so far? Yeah, so I think on a scientific way, like if you look at the emissions profile of Pennsylvania sites, in some ways they're very similar to the rest of the U.S. So uh, particularly they have what we sometimes call the fat tail distribution. So um, there's 
most of the sites have relatively low emissions, but a small number of sites have very high emissions. And we find this, this pattern throughout the country. And uh, the other thing I would say is, is just really there's a kind of a diversity of, of wells and emissions in the state. So there's big differences between the southwest and the northeast with the, the wet gas and, and oil production versus the, the dry gas production. And I think you can, you can kind of see that in some of the, the different emission rates, um, particularly looking at the conventional versus unconventional wells. So the, the conventional wells you know, have low production but very high loss rates approaching 23%. And there could be large amounts of, of wells elsewhere in the country that, that are very similar to this, that are marginal oil or gas wells that are in remote areas that have relatively high emission rates. Um, and in contrast, you have these unconventional wells that have relatively low loss rates, but very high gas production, which causes high absolute emission rates. So they're, they're similar to some of the, the unconventional wells that are going up in, in areas like the Eagleford and, and Permian. So I think that you know, the, the lessons and you know, the information we, we gain from Pennsylvania is, is really applicable to, to, to a diversity of production type throughout the U.S. and, and, and you know, potentially the rest of the world. So as we speak, it's late February as we're recording this. We're told that the Department of Environmental Protection is finalizing its rules for emission reduction, I think specific to new and modified facilities. And that rulemaking is going to be coming out within the next few weeks, uh, by the end of March, if I remember correctly. What are you and EDF hoping to see as the outcome of that process? What do you, what do you expect? What would be the best case scenario? Uh, I mean, I think the best case scenario would be comprehensive regulations that include new and existing wells, including both conventional and unconventional wells. Uh, since since our research shows that that really all those wells have substantial emissions, so to to have a, a really big impact on, on emissions, you're going to need to to reduce emissions from all of those. I think in in the long term, it's it's about really uh, viewing viewing reductions as kind of a continuous process and making sure that that regulations are both flexible and verifiable. So, um, giving companies the options to really to do whatever uh, is using the best available technology or practices to reduce emissions, as long as they can demonstrate that the emissions are actually being reduced. So that way you can you can start using some of these new technologies and practices and, and view it as kind of a continuous improvement process. So you never say, hey, emissions are reduced enough. You know, if, if, if new cost-effective ways come of, of getting emissions further, then we can be even more ambitious to try to, to minimize those emissions. So you've compiled a lot of information. You've also built some pretty nifty tools to make that information accessible. Talk about some of the ways that you can actually dive in and, as a user, understand better what your research has found. What what can ordinary people who are not academics or policymakers do with this information? Yeah, so if you go to our Pennsylvania Oil and Gas Emissions Data Tool on our website, then you can... Um, there's several different web pages that you can look at, including a, a highlights of the analysis that shows our various emission estimates and the emission reductions from various policies. Uh, but we also have a, a map so you can see the emission estimates 
from whales from various counties. And then there's also a modeling tool that you can set different kinds of control scenarios, so including no state controls, moderate controls, and comprehensive controls, and the tool will estimate emission reductions. Um, so we, we're hoping it's a, a very easy to use, self-explanatory user interface that can really help bring this data to the public and regulators so they can help make and have informed uh, policy decisions. David Lyons, scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund, whose report on oil and gas methane emissions in Pennsylvania is now online. As you said, edf.org slash Pennsylvania methane, and we'll have the link on our site as well in the show notes for this episode. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time today. All right, thanks, Josh. If you want to dive into the study, you can find it at edf.org slash Pennsylvania methane, where you can also find some of those interactive visualization tools. Again, edf.org slash Pennsylvania methane. And again, as always, we'll have the link at peckpa.org. And that's the show. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. They come out every other Friday at peckpa.org and on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, via RSS, and anywhere you download podcasts. Wherever you find us, take a moment, please, to rate and review the show to help uh, us reach new listeners. Or even better, mention it to a friend or a colleague. Word of mouth goes a long way to help us grow the audience for Pennsylvania Legacies. Until next time, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.